All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. You know, you know you're in good shape when uh, the uh, church announcements start to sound like the cafeteria lunch list. So we got snacks at this one. We got burritos at that one. We got potluck at this one. So next week, yeah, it's just pies. So don't get all tripped up about lunch. Just eat pie and then go out to lunch. It'll be uh, easier that way. So uh, kids, you guys are dismissed. Headed out with Monsieur Ed for like preschool through fifth grade and then um, middle school, high school. You guys are headed out with Don Jay today for some excitement and fun. So you guys have a good one. <clears throat> hey, continue, of course, to, uh, to pray for Israel. Things over there are, are as complicated as they ever have been. Um, we're actually going to have an opportunity in the coming weeks to talk a little bit about what's happening over there because we'll be heading into a section where Jesus outlines um, the end times. And so, of course, uh, all of this, um, not necessarily the, the beginning of the end times, but certainly uh, continuing to head in that direction. So we'll get to that uh, when we get to that. That was very super profound. So anyway, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless uh, our time uh, in the word today. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your body, Lord. We thank you for all of the opportunities that you provide to us, Lord, to be together and to fellowship and to encourage one another, Lord, and to just to worship and to celebrate all those things that you are doing in our lives, Lord, that tremendous gift that you've given us, Lord, through your son on the cross, Father, we, uh, we pray as we go to your word this morning, Lord, that we would just continue in that attitude and that heart of worship, Lord, and that this would be a time uh, where we just dedicate and devote our hearts unto you, Lord. Open hearts, Lord, praying that your spirit would speak to each one of us, Lord, and just show it is what you have uh, to say to your church today, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. We're actually going to finish Mark chapter 12 this morning. Praise the Lord. If you need a Bible, um, we have them for you. You can just raise your hand and maybe Rick will bring one to you. You could use a Bible on your phone. Whatever you, uh, whatever you want to do will be. Again, Mark chapter 12, just verses 41 through 44. Just a short little uh, passage to finish up this morning. And as we've watched these last few weeks, Jesus, of course, now in the final week of his life here in Jerusalem. It's during the Passover week, and we've talked about the fact that we have these you know, Passover pilgrims have just flooded and filled the entire city for this annual feast and this annual sacrifice. Each family, of course, presenting a lamb, you know, to be offered for their sins. And during the, these days, right, of course, as the lambs were being chosen and the, the lambs were being very closely scrutinized and examined by the priests in the temple, you know, to ensure that they were in perfect health and without blemish and worthy of being offered up to the Lord, even now, of course, now in the temple courts, how we've seen that the true Lamb of God, right, selected by the Father in eternity past, here Jesus has entered the city himself, presented himself to the people not only as their Messiah, but truly as the Lamb of God. Right, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, that perfect sacrifice made for our sins just days now from this point on the cross. And we've been in this chapter for so many weeks now watching just what is Tuesday of the Passion Week. As Jesus has been here in the temple courts, we've watched the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of these different religious leaders examining him. Right, But they were testing him to see specifically if they could find any fault in him. They're trying to sort of trip him up before the people, hoping to divide his support from amongst the people with a series, remember, of these loaded questions, that political puzzler about paying taxes and the doctrinal dilemma about the afterlife, this ethical entrapment about the law. We've seen just group after group strategically sort of coming at him just to entrap him until last week. 
And you remember last week we said that Jesus, after he had so easily answered all of their questions, he sort of turned the tables, if you will, on the religious leaders, and he asked them one question of his own. And it was a question designed to really get them to finally realize that they had the wrong idea. They had a very small idea about the Messiah about the son of David, about who he was and who he would be. And because of that, they had a very wrong idea about Jesus himself, about who he actually is and what he actually came to do. And remember, after he asked this question of the religious leaders, he then turned his attention to the crowd, this huge Passover crowd that had amassed there in the temple courts watching all of this happen. And we remember that he offered in what were the very final words of Jesus' public ministry. He offered both a very stinging rebuke and a very stark warning to this crowd about the hypocrisy of these religious leaders and about the, the dangers of following after them in their errors. And at the end of it all, Right, All of these leaders, again, Herodians, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, they just sort of sneaked off the scene speechless, retreating kind of into the shadows. And we know now they're even more firmly committed than ever to destroy him. So that's where we've come to on this Tuesday. It has been a busy day to say the least, and it is not nearly over yet because as I just mentioned, when we get into chapter 13, still on Tuesday, we're going to see yet another major section of Jesus' teaching, but only to his disciples. It's what we call the Olivet Discourse, right? It's where he's going to outline all of the events at the end of the age. But even before we get there, what we have here in just these few final verses of chapter 12 is one more encounter that Jesus is going to have here in the temple courts. And yet this one, in stark contrast to all of the rest, this is an encounter which is going to warm his soul and strengthen his spirit. And he's going to use this encounter now as an example for his disciples and for us of a heart that's truly devoted to God. And he's going to use it as an opportunity sort of to teach us what is a lesson in heavenly accounting. So let's look on as we continue. We're going to pick up in verse 41 of Mark chapter 12 where it says that now Jesus sat opposite the treasury. Now I'm going to pause here just to give us this sense of where Jesus is now as he moves a little further into the temple complex. He moves from where all of these other series of conflicts had occurred there in what was called the outer, kind of the court of the Gentiles. It's that whole huge area there where both Jew and Gentile could kind of gather up and listen in on Jesus' teaching. So he moves up he would have stepped through one of those nine different gates and into what is called the court of women. Another huge open area there you can see right in the middle. You could probably get about 15,000 people, historians estimate, into this area. And the court of women was as close as an Israeli woman was allowed to get to the actual temple. Because beyond that was what was called the court of Israel, where only the men were allowed to go. And so Jesus has made his way now into here. And we sort of get the sense, I think, from the, from the way Mark makes note of it, from what we know has just come before this, as we just said. Jesus is just a handful of days away from what he knows will be an excruciating, torturous death on a Roman cross for our sins. So that's what's just right out in front of him. And we just think about the weight that must have been on Jesus at that moment, especially now after this morning he has had of conflict and hostility, all of this opposition. And so we get the sense, I think, that Jesus just kind of slips in here, if you will, into the court of women just to get away from the crowds, just to find a place where he could almost just sit down quietly on this bench, which Mark makes note, 
is just across from the treasury. So the treasury, of course, this place, as it sounds, here in the temple where all of the monies would be collected. It was a place where people could make all of their donations for the, the worship of God. And though the text doesn't tell us specifically, what history tells us is that here in this place, there was a series of these 13 different sort of chests that were set up along the wall of the treasury. And into each one of these, you could make your donation. They were called actually the trumpets because they were sort of shaped like trumpets. They had a, a sort of a larger opening and a funnel top that would go down into each of these different chests, each one of them for a different kind of giving. It's, it's almost as though, you know, if you go to a, some uh, websites, you see a drop-down menu maybe of the organization, and you can choose to where you want to make your contribution. Maybe you want to select the general fund, or maybe you want to select a specific church plant or a, a missions donation. Well, in a way, this was kind of that same idea, because one of the trumpets was apparently for new temple dues. So if you were current with your temple tax, you would put your, you know, this year's tax into that one. There was also one for past temple dues. Maybe you'd gotten a little behind. You needed to get caught up and, you know, and then there was one that was, you know, you could give an offering for the bird offerings, which they were made by the poorest of people. There was one to pay for spice offerings and gold offerings. And then there were six of these 13 boxes that were set up for free will offerings. And so this is the place where Jesus sits down now here, kind of opposite this long row of these boxes. And Mark now tells us in the rest of verse 41, so he sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Now, we don't know just how long Jesus was sitting here watching these people. We just know he was watching them as they put their money into these trumpets. But notice, I think it's interesting, more than that, Mark specifically makes note of us here, wasn't just that Jesus was watching as they did this, but more specifically, it says he was watching what? How they did this. He was watching how the people put money into the treasury. And one of the things apparently that he noticed was these large amounts that some of the rich were giving. So we have to ask the question that any good Bible student would ask, how did Jesus know how much each person was giving? Well, the simplest answer, of course, is that he was God, right? Now, more accurately, that in his humanity, that the Holy Spirit could have given him knowledge of each person's gift as they were giving it. And yet the actual answer to the question of how he knew was probably even simpler than either one of those very spiritual sounding answers. The fact is that all of these offerings that were being made were made with coins. Right? They didn't use paper money. There was no auto debit. There was no you know, credit cards. And with these trumpets, right, these open-mouthed funnels that kind of led into these boxes, when you dumped a bunch of money into them, it must have made a bunch of noise as those coins kind of rattled their way down into the box, almost like when you dump a bunch of money into one of those coin star things, like at the grocery store that sorts it out for you. So as a result of this, when the rich came to give all of their offerings and they dumped these coins into this funnel, it must have sounded like a slot machine, right? Making a big payout, right? So the, the louder and the longer that the sound continued, well, the bigger we know that the gift was. And so we notice that Jesus notices all these things, right, as people are giving their offerings to God. And the truth of it is that Jesus still notices these things amongst his people. Now, I can see that some of y'all are starting to squirm a little bit. Right, getting a little bit nervous, you're thinking I picked the wrong day to come to church because this sounds like it might be a message about giving. Well, guess what? This is a message and this is a passage that is all about giving. Now, the truth is this. 
Right? We don't talk about it much in Calvary chapels. But the truth, as I'm sure you've heard before, is that the Bible, and Jesus in particular, speaks very often about our finances and talks repeatedly about our giving. Did you know there's only 2,100 times in the Bible where our giving to the Lord is clearly mentioned? There are 100 times just in the New Testament where the subject is very clearly addressed. 39 of the parables that Jesus taught, well, he taught 39 parables, 13 of them specifically somehow involve money or talk about giving. And this passage in our text today is just one of the many times in the Gospels where, where Jesus will teach us as his disciples on the subject of giving financially or giving materially to the Lord. And what we'll see as we go through the passage, certainly he doesn't in this passage, he doesn't give it some kind of a comprehensive handling of the subject. But what we're going to see that he does do is he brings out one single great point about our giving to the Lord. And it's a point that I think makes, would make, without this, it would make all of the rest of the teaching on giving incomplete, right? If this point wasn't built into our lives and built into our thinking and built into our understanding on this very important subject, certainly it goes without saying is that if we look from an economic or a financial perspective at the world today, if we look at the lives of so many in the world and even within the church today, we look at the shambles that so many are in just from a financial perspective, right? All the way from entire countries to state governments to county governments, city governments within those countries, down to families and down to individuals, I, I think that the one thing that's clear is that we as a people desperately need God's instruction concerning money and concerning finances. And we need it every bit as much as we need his instruction in every other area of our lives. Because what's true in every other area of our lives is also true as it relates to our finances. You know, John was the one who told us that God's commandments are not burdensome. But to the contrary, in every area of our lives, it's our obedience to his commandments that that's the way of achieving true blessing in life and really coming to that place of peace in our life. And the only way that we're going to have peace in our lives financially is by knowing that we're right with God in this area of our lives, just like any other area. So I want us to notice just a few things from this passage that I think are going to help us to bring our lives in our, and our giving really into right alignment with the heart of God. The very first one of those things we've already seen, and it goes without saying, but we need to notice the fact that there was a treasury there in the temple. And we see in our text today, we're gonna, you can see in every word that Jesus ever spoke in the gospel accounts, Jesus never denounced the existence of the treasury as a part of the worship of God by his people. Jesus wasn't embarrassed by the existence of a treasury. He, he wasn't troubled by the fact that, people, that God's people were giving to God's work. Because giving was and still is a very integral and an important part of the worship of the Lord, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But the reason is not exactly what you think it is. First and foremost, I think we need to hear this very simple statement and let it sink in kind of as the, the, the bedrock. But the truth is that God has chosen to support his work in the world through the giving of his people. So first and foremost, right out the gate, God uses his people to support his work. That's the way that God has chosen to do it. Now, he could have chosen to support his work in the world, I mean, in, in a thousand different ways. And yet he's chosen to support it solely through the giving of people like us who know him and love him and follow him and have given our lives to him. Did you notice it's not by accident at all in the temple complex that the treasury and the trumpets 
were located where? Just beyond the court of the Gentiles. They were here in the court of women, which is the first place in the temple complex where only the Jews could come. So only the people of the covenant could even get in here to this place to give to God's work. Now, we could ask the question, well, why would God choose to support his work in the world exclusively through the giving of his people? I mean, think about it. He could simply speak money into existence, right, and direct deposit it right into the account of the church, right? He could speak oil into existence. He could speak diamonds into existence. So why not just do it that way? Why doesn't he just shower us with a big truckload of diamonds a couple times a year? So why does he do it the way that he does it? Well, again, I'll tell you, but it's not exactly why you think. He does it this way, not because it's easiest for him, but because it's best for us. And even more so than that, because it is absolutely necessary for us. Because every time we give to God, we give away a little bit of our selfishness. We give away just a little bit more of our self-centeredness. Right? So, in the accounting of heaven, God uses his people to support his work, and God has us give because it's good for us. Right? Giving to him is one of the ways that he's given to us to become conscious of our self-centeredness and to be freed up just a little bit from our self-centeredness. Because what it does is it suddenly causes us to have concern for someone or something that's bigger than ourselves, right? When we give of ourselves financially, again, we give away just a little bit of our selfishness, and most of us have a fair amount of that to spare, amen? Okay. One of the things that happens when we give financially to the Lord is there just, there's, there's this consciousness in our spirit that we are just a little bit freer for having just done so, right? There's this impact that it really does have on us spiritually. There's a recognition now that I have a concern or I have an investment now in something that's so much greater than I am. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said this, he said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your treasure your heart is going to follow that. So you take a person with all of their wealth or all of their giving, maybe it's going into some kind of an IRA or it's going into the stock market or whatever, and you watch where people put their money and what happens every day, very often the very first thing that they do is they will turn to those pages in the paper or they will log into that website or they will open up that app to find out How's my money doing today? Right? Well, it's the very same thing when a person invests in a financial way in the things of the Lord. Because there's something that really does happen in us. And there is this, this deeper concern now that is birthed in our hearts for the kingdom of God. And for the work of God and for what's going on with the things of God all around the world. All of a sudden, we can't wait to find out what's happening in India or what's happening in China or you know, as it relates specifically to the kingdom. We can't wait to find out what's going on over in Europe or what's happening with the Browers down in Valdivia. Wherever it might be that we are invested, right, as individuals or as a church body here in Mountain View, you know, throughout the Bay Area, it really does have an effect on our lives, not just physically and financially, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. Every time I give to the local church, there's that satisfaction of knowing that God is using my life to impact others. And there's this wonderful reminder that he is the one who has given me the ability and the means and the resources to even be able to do that. Right? Do you realize that? 
Every time we give, it's just an acknowledgement that everything we have came from God. Everything that we have actually still belongs to God. And I shouldn't be trying to hold on to it too lightly. And I, I suspect you're a little bit like me, but I need a regular reminder of that in my life. And I need a regular reminder of that through my giving because I will tell you the alternative is not a pretty one. And I have seen it played out too many times in the lives of God's people throughout the years of my ministry because the alternative is, as a Christian, the alternative is not to give freely to the Lord, right? And then to have the Lord have to remind me through some harsher measures for my own good, he's good at reminding us that everything that I have belonged to him. He's very good at, at teaching us or at bringing or maybe just allowing into our lives whatever it is that's necessary for us to realize that, of course, because he loves us. And what he doesn't want is for our money to be the Lord, right? To be the supreme authority in our life. He doesn't even want our money to be like lowercase Lord anywhere in our lives. So each time we give, it's just an acknowledgement, Lord, you are Lord. Everything I have came from you. Everything I have still belongs to you. Every time I give, there's that fresh realization, that reminder that my security isn't in my money, but it's in the Lord. And I need a constant reminder of that also, right? My security isn't in the balance in my bank account, right? Lord, my security is solely in you. And to be reminded that I am going to eat every day until my final day, I'm gonna have shelter until my final breath, I'm gonna have clothing until that final hour, not because of any sort of an asset liability kind of a calculation that I can put on some Excel spreadsheet, but because I know that I'm right with God in this area of these promises. And I know that he's faithful to those promises. Right? Every time we give, what we're doing is we're putting a little bit more of our heart into heaven. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? Again, in Matthew chapter six, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here it is again, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So giving to God is not supremely about the money as much as it is about my heart. Right? It's about making me a little bit more heavenly minded while I'm here in this world. And that's exactly what we're gonna see that Jesus is about to see in this very next verse, right? Here he is sitting on this day, on this bench, opposite the treasury in the temple. He's watching how people give. He's just seen the rich giving these large amounts, which by the way, he doesn't condemn, right? But then next, it says in verse 42, it says that then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. Now, you can bet that this widow's offering barely made a sound at all as she put it into the trumpets, right? Two little mites. Some of your translations may say, you know, two copper coins, Somebody gave me two of them this morning, which you can check out after service today. Whatever it says, let me tell you, it wasn't much. A quadrants, which Mark mentions here, is about 164th of a Roman denarius, which we've said was about the day's wage for a, a blue collar kind of a worker in that day. So if we were gonna do some quick math and maybe adjust for inflation, what she just put in there would have been the equivalent of about a buck 75. That's what she just put into that offering box. It was hardly enough to even notice. 
But watch next, because Jesus not only notices this woman and her offering, but it says at the beginning of verse 43 that he called his disciples to himself. And he said to them, right, because he wanted them to notice it too. Now, we don't know where the boys had gone or how far they were from him, but they were far enough that Jesus had to round them back up, right, to call them to come to him. And I stopped here because that word called is a colorful one. It means to clamor or to call loudly, right? So there's an urgency about it. When Jesus calls these guys over to him, there's an emotion that's behind this. And we're going to see that it's because he was encouraged by what it is he had just witnessed. And right about this point, I don't know about you, but it does my heart good to see my Savior's heart blessed and encouraged. Right here in the midst of all this hostility that he's just endured at the hands of the religious leaders, the midst of all of that rejection, in the midst of all of these different things, Jesus is given this wonderful encouragement from the Father by this woman, this nameless widow and her two little mites. It was something that made him clamor right, to get his guys over here. Because he's about to use this woman's example to teach them and to teach us a very critical lesson about the heart behind our giving. Right? So verse 43, he called his disciples to himself and said to them, he says, assuredly, I say to you. Does that sound familiar? There's that little phrase Right, that very important phrase that we've heard from Jesus a few times before. There's 14 of those assuredly's in total in Mark's gospel. And what it means is that Jesus is about to drop a significant spiritual truth right into our laps. So pay attention, right, if we weren't. It says, assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So there were no bells, there were no buzzers, there were no flashing lights, there was no clanging of the coins as they dropped into that trumpet. But what there was, was the attention, and I think the full attention of the Son of God and I believe of heaven itself. Not of how much this woman gave, but how she gave it, right? Of the heart behind what it was that she gave. And the very first thing that we need to notice is that she gave willingly. Understand, there was no prescribed two might offering, right? The temple tax was only required for every male who was 20 years or older, and this widow was not there paying it on behalf of her husband. Why? Because he was dead. So this had to be a completely free will offering. And that's how God wants any gift that's given to him by his children. That's the way he wants it to be given. Again, that's why... When we talk about it, and I'm, I'm glad Donjay got it right this morning, it would have been awfully embarrassing for him. But when we talk about the offering, or when we pray for the offering here, we never say, we never talk about taking an offering, right? Unless we slip up and do it by accident. We don't take anything. No church should ever take an offering. We receive the offering because it's voluntary what people are giving to the Lord. Right? What Paul said to the Corinthians, he said that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you may have heard this, but it bears repeating. That word, a cheerful giver, literally means a hilarious giver. Right? So, 
Keep that in mind. When you drop an offering into the agape box, or when you make your contribution online, or when we pray for the offering here during the service, by all rights, we ought to be handing out kazoos and having some kind of like a Holy Spirit hoedown, right? As we just rejoice in the privilege that we have to give. Because the Lord doesn't want anything to be given to him grudgingly. Now, I know that someone could say, well, hasn't he commanded that we're supposed to give? Well, yes, he has. Repeatedly, as we said when we started. But you guys know how God works. If a person grinds against that, God just says, you know what? You keep it. Because let me let you in on a little secret, which shouldn't be a secret at all. God does not need your money despite what those guys on TV will tell you. You know, oh, God needs you now more than he's ever needed you before. We've only got 10 minutes left in today's broadcast. You know, you can, you can sow your seed offering. Send me $50. Did you ever notice that those guys always want you to sow your seed in their, you know, in their field, right? Here's the truth. God is not broke, God is fabulously wealthy, right? To the Texans in Psalm 50, he declared that all the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Every beast of the forest, right? Wealth is of absolutely no concern to him because it's not eternal. There are only two things in this whole world that are actually valuable. Two things that are not going to one day, Peter tells us, they're not gonna melt with fervent heat. They're not gonna give way to the new heavens and the new earth. The only things that are gonna outlast the heaven and the earth is the Bible, right? The word of God and the souls of individual men and women. So God is not at all concerned about diamonds or gold of money. None of those things supremely. What God is concerned about and what he wants is our hearts. And so he invites us in and allows us this privilege of partnering with him in the work to free our hearts up from the bondage of this world. And you think about King David, right? King David was a man who was absolutely in awe of the opportunity to give to the Lord. You know, by the time you get to the end of David's life, David had amassed unbelievable amounts of wealth and materials so that he could give it to his son Solomon so that Solomon could then build the temple that God had called Solomon to build. But this is what David cried out. He said this to the people at the dedication It's a little bit long, but it's worth it. It says, therefore, David blessed the Lord before the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, to our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Here it is. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you. And of your own, we have given you. So this is David, right? The man after God's own heart, because he was a man with the right heart. And you can just hear this deep awareness and this sense of privilege that David had of just being able to give to the things of the Lord. Everybody today wants to talk about privilege, right? This privilege, that privilege. Well, here it is. This is Christian privilege. And it's a good privilege, right? It's the opportunity to give to something that is eternal 
It's the opportunity to give to something that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth, to give to the work of God in the lives of people. You guys, I'm sure, have heard this said before, but the only thing we're taking to heaven is what? It's people. And can you imagine if we were doomed to spend every penny that we earn only selfishly on ourselves, right? If we had no option at all to give to God or to give to the things of God, it really would be a terrible, terrible way to live. And it's only because God is gracious and wonderful that he gives us this opportunity to invest in his work and to really have our hearts knit together with his Right? Our hearts knit together with his heart, right? So our giving knits our hearts to God's heart. To have that heart that would really grab the attention and the encouragement of the Son of God, right? Just like the heart of this widow. Because she gave willingly. The other thing, though, that we see is that not only did she give willingly, but she gave sacrificially. Right? Look at what Jesus notes. He says that she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. And this is important, you guys, because in Jesus' eyes, the size of the gift isn't measured supremely by the amount, but the size of the gift was measured by the sacrifice that it represented. And this is probably the single greatest lesson that comes out of this particular Incident is here in verse 43 where Jesus says, This poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. What this tells us is that he has a very different way of measuring given, right? Because if two mites from a widow is more than all of the much of the rich, that is heaven measuring our giving very, very differently than we do. And of course, that's the point. Right? So Jesus took all of the money that the rich had given. And again, he's not putting them down. He's not putting the giving down because they should have been giving it. But he took all of what they gave and he put it on one side of the balance. And he took the two little mites of the widow and he put those on the other side of the balance. And he said that her two mites outweighed all of the rest. And how can that be? Again, because he measures the gift by the sacrifice that it represents to the giver because that sacrifice, right, the very amount of the sacrifice translates very directly into the very amount of our faith. And faith is by far the most priceless of all of the commodities of heaven. See, in her faith, the widow gave in spite of her lack. She gave knowing and she gave trusting in faith and by faith that God was going to take care of everything, all the rest, right? And that sacrifice and that faith, that was of the greatest value in the accounting of heaven because heaven accounts for the sacrifice of our gift. Now, we don't like this idea, right? We don't like the implication of what this widow's action means because what this passage teaches us as Christians is that our giving to God should represent some sort of a sacrifice on our part. I realize if I hadn't lost you already, I just lost you there, right? And we don't like that idea. It's a very challenging passage but it's absolutely intended and included to challenge us, right? Jesus, not only was he aware of the amount that every person gave, but he also recognized, and only God could recognize this, but he recognized the degree of the sacrifice that each one of those gifts represented to the person who gave it. And I think it's amazing just to understand that Jesus knows everything about all of that. He sees the sacrifice that every offering, every offering represents for each and every one of us, and he sees the faith that it took, in many cases, to make that sacrifice, and it blesses him. And we don't get the sense at all. Jesus wasn't worried about this widow 
because she had just given all that she had, right? Her whole livelihood. Jesus wasn't worried that somehow now she was going to go out and starve to death as a result of having done this beautiful sacrificial giving because, right, the Lord has made promises that he will never allow any of his children and certainly he would never allow this kind of a person to starve to death. He is going to take care of those needs, right? Jesus had already taught, what did he say? Do not worry, you know, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear after all these things that Gentiles seek or unbelievers seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's exactly what she had done. And he says, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. No one can outgive God, right? It can't be done. God will not be any person's debtor. And Paul also reminds us in the, the letter that he writes to the church at Philippi. Remember, Philippi was a very giving church. They gave specifically, they gave sacrificially to support Paul in his ministry. So this promise that he gives is a promise for givers when he says in Philippians 4 that my God shall supply all your need. He doesn't say all your greed. That's a different translation. That's the new American translation. Pardon me. But my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And just as we noted earlier, our security is not in our own bank accounts, right? But here we see where exactly our security is. What does Paul say? Our security is as big as Jesus' bank account. Our security is according to his riches in glory. And let me tell you, that is one big bank account. And this widow, she knew that. This was a woman, she didn't see her money as her security. She saw the Lord, she saw his promises, she saw her security in those things. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't think anybody reaches that kind of place in their Christian life overnight. Or in a weekend, or in a year. That is something that God is working on and continually working on in our lives. But she had come to that place. And I know someone has said concerning all of this, I don't know exactly who it was or exactly how they said it, and I'll probably butcher, but it was basically something like God isn't raising money, he's raising children. And it's so very true because none of this is about the money to him. He can easily make money appear. He can make money disappear in people's lives. It is absolutely effortless to him. But he calls us to give the way he calls us to give because of the faith that it ultimately produces in our lives as his children. And he knows that our need to give is far greater than his need to receive. So, as we close... This is the first close. It's not really the close, right? But as we close, I want to quickly answer that burning question that I know is in many of your minds. How much are we supposed to give, right? What about the tithe, right? Tithe just means tenth. But is that still a New Testament concept or was that just for the Old Testament? Well, again, I'll tell you, the New Testament is clear. We should give for all of these reasons that we've already seen. And if you're not convinced of that, I will just leave that between you and the Lord to sort it out at some point. The Old Testament law did clearly prescribe the giving of a portion of your income or, or your increase, giving that directly to the work of the Lord through the temple and the workers of the Lord, right? It was to support the infrastructure of the temple, to support the operations of the worship and the priests who were busy with their priestly duties and couldn't work otherwise to support themselves. And when you look at the Old Testament and you add up all of the different requirements for giving that were listed out in the law, it equated actually 
to 23% of your income. So it was far more than just a tithe or a tenth. But even before the Mosaic Law was even given, which, yes, Jesus came to fulfill, but even before the actual law, we see Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 14, he gives a tithe of his increase to the priest Melchizedek. So many people will rightly make the case that this whole concept and this practice of giving a tithe, it predates the law by hundreds of years. But the point, again, is not the percentage. The point is the heart behind all of it. And when someone tries to argue that the 10% tithe is just part of the old covenant, but you know, now we're under this newer, better covenant, well, you can ask them to think through why what they just said makes absolutely no sense. Because if the old covenant was worth 10%, then how much is the new covenant worth? Right? So many Christians would make the case, and rightly so, I think, that the 10% should be the starting point for a New Testament believer, for the blessings that we have under the new covenant. And many would conclude that the, the New Testament teaches that we're to give as we're able, and indeed it does say that. But hold the phone, because our text today, unless you're reading it differently than I'm reading it, our text today would actually seem to indicate that what blessed Jesus was that this woman, not that she gave as she was able, but what did she do? She gave far beyond what she was able. So it would certainly seem to clearly indicate that in the economy of heaven that every Christian is called to give sacrificially to the Lord, whatever that looks like in your situation. Again, it was David who said much earlier, he said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. That was the heart of the man after God's own heart. So for all of those who want to argue and split hairs about percentages, right? we just went right from a call to give 10% in the old covenant. We went straight to now giving sacrificially under the new covenant. So, please don't try to use the Bible to find a loophole because you will lose each and every time. The clearest direction that we see in the New Testament are the words of the Apostle Paul, which we've already looked at, that each should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he also wrote this, earlier to the Corinthians, he says about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. He says on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So giving was to be regular, it was to be systematic, and it was to be commensurate with what you had. Now, I say all of this not because we are about to pass the plate to take an offering. I don't even think we have plates to pass, right? I'm also not saying it because I want you to run out to the agape box in the foyer and stuff it full of your checks after the service. In fact, I've asked the guys to put the box away. So if you do want to give, you're going to have to wait and do it next week. The reason that I bring this all up is that I want you to simply seek the heart of the Lord on this matter personally and individually and do whatever it is he tells you to do personally and individually. But I can't afford to give, right? I live in the Bay Area, right? I get it. Guess what? I live in the Bay Area too. But I can just tell you, and I tell you because I love you as your pastor, the truth is, you can't afford not to give. Because in the real economy of heaven, it is far too important of a part of what God is trying to do in your heart and to build your faith. And I'll say this, we have some great givers in this church. 
by God's grace, right? People, very faithful givers who give faithfully and regularly, and some I know who give very sacrificially to support the work that God is doing here and to support the things that the Lord is doing through this church. So I just want to take a few minutes to read the names of these people, <laughs> to give them their little trophy. You guys know I wouldn't do that. You guys know who you are. And more importantly, right, the Lord knows who you are. But I will simply say this, and it's the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to say it in love to anybody who has struggled or is struggling in this area. My concern is not really for the church. I can honestly say that. Because I know that God is going to continue to be faithful to us as long as we are faithful to him. He's going to honor and he's going to continue to provide for the work here at Calvary Mountain View. My concern is for you. Right? Paul wrote this again to the church at Philippi. He was writing to them about their giving. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So Paul was far less concerned. He wasn't concerned for himself and what he was going to receive. He was concerned for the Philippians and what it was that they actually were going to receive in return for what they'd given. That in some way, in the way that heaven does accounting, the fruit that came from Paul's ministry would somehow be credited to their account. And because of this, Paul could willingly and gladly and warmly and humbly, he could receive their sacrifice of giving to him because he knew he could look past that at the blessing that the Lord Jesus was going to continue to pour out on them. And without getting too technical in just our last moments here together, our English word for abounds in that verse, like the fruit abounding to their accounts, it comes from a word which was used in like the money markets in Paul's day, actually for the accumulation of interest payments. So the word accumulating or even accruing might be a better way to think about the word abounds. Because in the accounting of heaven, God uses his people to support his work. He has us give because he knows it's good for us. Our giving knits our hearts together with his. Heaven accounts for the sacrifice of our gift. And then all of that fruit just accrues to our account. And Paul uses that word accrues in the present tense, which simply means that this fruit was already in the process of currently accumulating or currently accruing to them. It wasn't just something that would be waiting for them someday in heaven. And I think that this is such an important principle regarding our giving is that we are never the poorer for having given to the Lord. But that investment, if you will, that you make just keeps compounding interest, right? In terms of the fruit that's evident even here and now, it's that fruit that becomes evident in our lives and in our hearts and in our character. Because again, our hearts are freed up from the world and they're united more with the heart of God and the purposes of God and the work that he's doing in the world. And it builds our faith in those very things. And we're done early. God bless you guys. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you, Lord, even for these texts that may challenge some of us, Lord, but we know that you've included these things for a reason, Lord, I pray that, that um, Lord, that your word would find the fertile soil in open hearts this morning, Lord. Again, not because we need the money, Lord, but because we need to be an obedient people in this area, Lord, because of the things that we know that you want to do in each one of us personally. And so, Father, we pray that as we worship, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, to make these truths a reality in our lives and in our hearts. And um, Father, just pray that we would follow the leading of your spirit, whatever it is that you would have 
for us to do around these things. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.